My job is primarily to teach the Bible. And in some ways, it's becoming increasingly difficult because less than half of Americans are now committed to a Christian church. Um, I read also that less than 35% of Americans now attend any church regularly. Pastors used to assume that the people listening to us believed the Bible is true. But we cannot assume that anymore. And frankly, I think we probably never should have assumed that. And so before I teach the Bible this morning, I want to give um, just one of the many reasons why I trust the Bible. Why I really believe it's actually God's word to us. And if you want to hear more about that, if you want to discuss it, come and see me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, but one of the reasons I believe the Bible is really true is because the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. And if you understand the history and the culture of the first century in the Roman Empire and the Jewish world... If men wanted to tell a convincing story, if they wanted to invent a religion, they would never write it the way they did. Women would not have been the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection because men did not value the testimony of women. But looking back at it, it actually makes the story seem authentic to me. And this is just my opinion, but it just seems like exactly the sort of thing God would do. Tell an unlikely story and then people believe it. Here's another example. The Gospel of Matthew lists four women in the family tree of Jesus. Um, Tamar, Rahab... Ruth and Bathsheba. All four of those women were foreigners. They were not Israelites by birth. And all four of their stories <clears throat> involved, um, let's just say, some sketchy situations. Okay, Matthew told us that his purpose in writing was to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah, but humanly speaking, that argument would have been stronger if he had left those women out. Except that God wanted them in the story. It's authentic. It's just, it's just one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is actually God's word. It's because God clearly values women far more than the world does. And as we consider the resurrection this morning, we're going to do it through the story of one of those four women in the family tree of Jesus, the one named Ruth. We've been studying the book of Ruth for the past several weeks. And before we read the last chapter, let me summarize the story so far if you're just now joining us today. It begins with death. Naomi, who uh, was a woman from Bethlehem, the town where Jesus was born, right? Uh, she travels to the land of Moab in search of food with her family. And after 10 years of living in a foreign country, Naomi loses her husband 
and both of her sons. She then returns to Bethlehem as a widow with no children. But Ruth, who is her daughter-in-law, decides to go with Naomi. And Ruth takes on the responsibility of providing for the family by collecting the leftover barley in the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz uh, turns out to be a very generous man. He protected Ruth. He broke some of the rules of his own culture. He allowed her to take as much as she wanted. That's not something that was common. And then after a few months, Naomi sends Ruth on this dangerous mission to propose marriage to Boaz. And that's something that women in that culture never did. It was risky and it was bold because marrying Ruth would have been a great personal sacrifice for Boaz. She was at the bottom of the social ladder. And surprisingly, Boaz agreed to the proposal But we learned, um, if you watched the video this week on Ruth chapter 3, we learned that he had to deal with this legal problem first because Boaz was not the closest relative. By law, there was another redeemer with first rights to Naomi's inheritance. And that's where we're going to take up the story in Ruth chapter 4. This is God's holy word beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And the man turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, Boaz is shrewd. He waits to tell the man about Ruth. Because he knows that Ruth complicates the transaction. He wants the man to think he's getting a good deal... But then he changes the terms. I don't know if that's good business or not, but that's what he does, right? If the man buys Naomi's land, all he has to do is take care of an old woman for a few years, and then the land will belong to his family, 
because everybody knows Naomi is too old to have a son. But if the man has to marry Ruth, everything changes. Because if Ruth has a son, then the son would inherit Naomi's land and keep her dead husband's last name. And the man is not interested in that arrangement. And Boaz gets what he wants. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one man drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You were witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now I want you to notice the mention here of three important women, including Tamar, who is also listed in the family tree of Jesus, along with Ruth. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of of David. And there's that spoiler that I told you about. So you've got this picture, this final picture in the book of Ruth of Naomi holding Obed. And it's very significant because Ruth and Boaz fade away. Ruth doesn't even appear in chapter 4. This story 
was not about their romance. This baby, in a very real sense, belongs to Naomi. Boaz was really supposed to be her kinsman, Redeemer. But she was too old. Naomi ends up becoming the great-grandmother of King David. And that's what this story is really about. That's why God's fingerprints have been all over this story. David would begin the greatest dynasty in Israel's history. He would also write most of Israel's poetry and song. And I am absolutely certain that the influence of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz made its way through his grandfather Obed and through his father Jesse to young David. And we're going to begin studying the life of David in First and Second Samuel next week. But I want you to first remember, let's go back, okay? Put this whole story in perspective. Ruth, as a book, began with hunger and death and grief. It ends with redemption and restoration, but along the way there has been a lot of sacrifice and a lot of tension, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of risk. And what I want to talk to you about this morning on Easter Sunday is this. The pagan view of the world, the common view of the world that we live in, is that we are all a part of something called the circle of life. Does that sound familiar? Listen to how Mufasa explains the circle of life to Simba in The Lion King. Okay? Any Lion King fans? Okay, child of the 90s here, sorry. Um, everything you see exists together in a delicate balance. As king, you need to understand that balance and respect all creatures from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. Okay? Simba says, but dad, don't we eat the antelope? Mufasa the great voice of James Earl Jones, right? He says, yes, Simba, but let me explain. When we die, our bodies become the grass and the antelope eat the grass. And so we are all connected in the great circle of life. Now, you laugh, but listen. Almost every ancient civilization on the planet, east, west, north, south, described the world in this way. And most people alive today still think of the world this way. Okay? It is a circle of life and death. We are born, we live, we die, and then someone or something else takes our place. Sounds cute in a Disney movie, but our destiny is not just to be worm food or antelope food, okay? The Bible completely rejects this view of the world. And this is actually important. 
Instead, the Bible tells a story that looks more like this. Not a circle, but a curve. Death descends and then rises to resurrection. The Bible begins with the story of the fall. It tells us how sin and death enter the world. And then the Bible ends with resurrection and restoration. Always death before life. The circle of life, the other worldview, only offers anybody hope for today, maybe. And in many cases, just yesterday. Not today. The Bible is offering us a hope that is in some ways for today, not completely. But in the future, there is a hope beyond death that is eternal. It is a better story. Now, one of the things I love about the story of Ruth is that as we've studied it, you've noticed the background seems so completely hopeless. The world counted Naomi and Ruth as completely worthless. And Naomi felt worthless, right? I mean, Ruth has this positive attitude, this positivity. Naomi's depressed. She's pretty much given up at the beginning of the story. But God never counted them as worthless. That's what the story is about. That's His fingerprints all over it, right? The world sees you as valueless. God sees you as worthless. He saw, he saw tremendous value in these women when the world did not. If you remember our study of Judges before, God seemed mostly absent from the entire book. He shows up very little. But He was always there. And where was He? He was in the background. He was working out this masterful, skillful plan in the lives of a farmer and two widows and countless other nameless people. People that we will never know their stories, but God was doing something in their lives. And listen, as far as we're concerned, the works of God are usually in those small things. They're in the everyday things. Boaz and Ruth had no idea that we would be reading their love story a few thousand years later. It's not why they made these decisions. And yet God is honoring them. You know, Naomi had no idea how special this child. I mean, the child was obviously special to her because it was going to continue her family line. But she had no idea what God was actually going to do. And guys, we have no idea the kind of legacy that will flow from the words that we speak and the choices that we make, the things that we choose to do. God is not absent from our lives. The fact that you feel like He is is irrelevant. Even in the difficult moments, I think especially in the difficult moments, God is busy forging life out of death. That's one thing that I think we should see and learn from the story of Ruth. But there's something else important in this story that I don't want us to miss, okay? Do you remember the part 
where Boaz announces the transaction, right? He gathers people to witness it, to attest to it, right? And he uses formal legal language. And then there was this custom of exchanging sandals. Remember that part? Now, Boaz has an intention, a plan of loving Ruth and helping Naomi. That's what he's trying to do. But the how is just as important as the intent. There was a legal process. He couldn't just do it. He couldn't just take Ruth for herself. It would not have been right. Someone else had those rights. He had to announce that transaction in formal legal language. Now, we don't know exactly why they exchanged sandals, but we do know that a man's sandals were the dirtiest, smelliest thing on his body. And for some reason, that was their chosen symbol of redemption. And I want you to know, this is also how God's love works. It is the same with God, okay? God's love for sinners is good news, but how God achieved that good news is vital. It was also a transaction, not a transaction with dirty sandals, but with a bloody cross. Do you understand that death had the rights to us? What did God say to Adam and Eve? In the day that you sin, you will surely die. Death owned us before the cross. Jesus became our Redeemer by making an exchange, by dying in our place. Paul explains the legal transaction in legal language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the only circle of life in the Bible. That's the only place it shows up. God exchanged our sin for the righteousness of Christ at the cross. That's what God's love looks like. Okay, It's not just enough to say, God loves you. He intends to love you somehow. This is how He did it. And that matters. How He loved us matters. He took our dirty sandals and we really have nothing to offer Him in return. Jesus demonstrated that love the night before His death by taking the sandals off of His disciples and washing their dirty feet. Brothers and sisters, your value... Your value as a human being 
your future. Your ability to forgive others, to love others, to find any real joy or peace in this world, it all depends on the cross. Some of you grew up hearing this and it's faded into the background. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I, you know, you don't know, I don't know. But listen, I'm telling you, the love of God for you in Jesus Christ is the only real thing. And He's inviting you to trust Him. Maybe again, maybe for the first time. And just like Ruth, He has promised He will write your name in His family tree. It's not just a legal exchange. It's also a legal adoption. He makes us part of the family. And listen, He doesn't care what the world says about you. He doesn't care how dirty your sandals are. He's not inviting you into His family because you check all the boxes, because you're worthy, because you deserve it. He makes us worthy in Christ. He's saying, trust me and it will be counted to you as righteousness. That will be enough. It will be enough in Him. That is the resurrecting love of God. Not a circle of good and bad, but a better story. Life from death. Love from sacrifice. All the rest and renewal that your soul craves can be found only in the risen Christ. And He is risen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Christ, our Savior, You're the only one in this room who can see into our hearts. You're the only one that knows what we truly believe what we are resting in, what we are finding hope in, and some of us are frantically hiding the fact that we are we're desperate, we're hopeless. But we don't have to be. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would show Yourself risen to us today. Everybody in this room, You would show Yourself risen to us by Your Spirit. You can raise our spirits from the dead. You're the only one with the power to do it. You've proven it. Countless eyewitnesses saw it. This was not a conspiracy. You are alive. We believe, Lord. Help us in our unbelief. And for those that do, I pray that we would rejoice as we never have before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.